welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwane. Today we're speaking about doubt, so we're tackling some light topics here into the Easter time, but open up your Bible with me if that's all right. If you don't have one, there are some handout Bibles at the back, John 20, verse 24, so that's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you'll get John, John 20, verse 24. Just to bring us up to speed, last week we said that religion is filled with these phrases like finding God and finding your way. On the other side of the coin, you have secular self-help and religion that basically says, you know, we are to find our purpose and find our true self. But Christianity is the very opposite. Because instead of telling us to go and find our purpose and way in ourselves, it tells the good news of a God who comes to find us. In fact, Easter, as we are building up to it over that weekend, is all about God who in Jesus we believe has come to find us exactly where we are, exactly who we are. Easter is about being found. And you know what? That happens everywhere in the Bible. I love the fact that Jesus in Luke 19, he says, the Son of Man, this was his purpose, he has come to seek and save the lost. And everywhere, when Jesus is resurrected, not as a spirit, not as an apparition, but the, the body of Jesus. Resurrected body is resurrected. It says he appears to many groups and people, but three specific interactions that he has, we want to look at in these three weeks. And we want to say that this means being found exactly where we are. Week one, last week, we said Mary Magdalene was found in the presence of demons. Go and listen to that one. Today, we're going to see that Thomas is found in crippling doubt. And next week, Bosov is going to help us by looking at Peter, who is found in failed conviction. Often the very thing that I promised myself, I fail in. And my question to you this morning, to myself, as we build up to Easter, is where do you find yourself? Have you maybe in this last season, maybe as you're struggling with thoughts about religion and faith, have you fallen and faltered and failed? Do you, more than anything, desire deeply in your heart to experience the forgiveness and the wholeness and the grace of God? Then I want to say, join us in this journey, friends. Easter is not about finding, finding, finding. It's about being found. So today, Thomas is found by Jesus in crippling doubt. Post-resurrection, the following happens, John 20. But Thomas, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, if you don't, and if I don't see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the mark of those nails and put my hand into a side where the spear went in, I will never believe. So a week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. 
And even though the doors were closed and locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, come, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And so Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed then are those who have not seen and yet believe. To there. Now, often in church tradition, we call him Doubting Thomas, right? But I hope that you see today that there is not a single time in this passage where Jesus rebukes Thomas for his doubting. Did you see that? Not once. What does Jesus do? He comes to find him exactly where he is, and what does he do? He engages him. He shepherds him. He teaches. He helps. He guides And then there's a moment where he responds. And we need to realize this has always been who Thomas is, friends. I relate to this guy because I'm a lifelong skeptic. Even, you know, earlier in the the ministry of Jesus, John 14, this famous moment where Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. And he's about to speak about the cross and what's going to happen. And he says to them, you know the way where I am going, the speech. What does Thomas say? Uh, no, we don't know where you are going. Like, how can we even know that? Like, Thomas is the one, like, everyone else is like, yes, Jesus, amen. They're worshiping, the music is swelling in the background. And Thomas is like, hey, guys, this is nonsense. Like, what are you saying? Seriously, where are you going? How are we supposed to know this? This is who Thomas is. This is who many of us are. And this is what doubt does. Doubt is the interruption of your life's story. When suddenly something comes into your life and something that you absolutely believe that you believe about God, about faith, and about life is suddenly so shaken that you say, I'm not sure if I believe this actually. I'm not sure if I can live this. In fact, this word doubt literally comes from an Aryan word that means two. So it feels like you are living in the space where your mind and your heart And your life is torn between these two things suddenly for days, for weeks, for months, for years. You're walking with a struggle where this is what I think, but this is what I feel. This is what I believe, but this is what I experience. Doubt is tough. But this is what I want us to see, friends. So crucial. If you take one thing away from today, this is it. This is crucial. In the words of Thomas... In this interaction with Jesus, I hope that you see that there is a massive difference between the word doubt and the word unbelief. It's not the same thing. And this is the two, these are the concepts that the Bible constantly comes back to. Doubt and unbelief are not the same things. Why? Because doubt says, I'm unsure of what is right. I'm unsure what is true. I'm unsure in this moment what I believe. Whereas unbelief says, I don't care anymore. I don't care what is true. I don't care what is right. I don't care what is the truth in this moment. And therefore, we have to realize that, yes, doubt can lead to brokenness and sin. But in the very same breath, doubt can lead to stronger, more robust, and potent faith. 
doubt is not an obstacle. It's an opportunity in the life of the Christian. So I want us to look just very briefly today at just three things that are so key. Like last week, speaking about demons and the devil, we can open too many questions today. That's not what I'm going to try and do. Hundreds of sermons that we can roll into this topic. I just want to ask three very simple questions on this issue and engage us in it. And the first thing is this. What is the reality of doubt? We'll get to some of the reasons and the way that we react to it in a second. What are some of the realities of doubt? And I want to say, friends, two sides of the same coin is true about doubt. Number one, the one side of the coin is that everyone is struck by doubt. Everyone. Friends, we have this caricature that doubt is for the person who's outside of the faith, or the person who's not in the church, or the person who is adamant about their atheism. That is not the truth. That's a stereotype. There has not been a single Christian of the billions of them in the last 2,000 years of Christian history that have not gone through seasons of intense and repeated doubt. That's a fact. In fact, I love this. Diana Groover, she writes this brilliant book, Companions in the Darkness, Saints Who Have Struggled with Depression and Doubt. And she mentions amongst them people like Martin Luther and David Brainerd and Mother Teresa and Charles Spurgeon. These are guys where I don't know how far you've gotten in faith. They've gotten further than me. That I will tell you. And yet they had seasons of intense doubt and wrestling. Friends, even many of the the people that we read of in the Bible, the authors of many of the books of the Bible had seasons of intense doubt or depression. And yet God worked powerfully through them. So my question to us is not, can this happen to anybody? (laughs) My answer is, if we are being honest here this morning, and you're not going to give me nice Sunday school answers, the answer is, it does happen to everybody. The question is just, are we honest about it, and what do we do in it? Friends, Matthew 28, verse 17. This is one of the other moments post-resurrection in the Gospels. What happens? Jesus appears, the resurrected Jesus, in body, not in spirit, not in like ghost apparition form. The resurrected Jesus appears to some of his disciples that have walked with him for three years. And it says, when they saw him, they worshipped. Amazing. They worshipped. And what does the rest of that verse say? But some doubted. Friends, how is it that people in the church think that they cannot wrestle through doubts when some of the apostles who looked into the eyes of the resurrected Jesus doubted? We have to get this out of our system, that there is something broken about your faith if you are wrestling through really difficult issues. Hear me today, Hatfield. Yes, doubt disrupts the journey of faith, but it never disqualifies you from the journey of faith. Can I say that again? Faith, friends, is a journey. And yes, doubt can disrupt you in the journey of faith, but it cannot disqualify you from the journey of faith. Amen? But other side of the coin. Yes, we are all struck by doubt, but here's the beautiful thing. There is such a positive and potential energy in doubt. In fact, one author would always say that doubt is like the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps you moving, right? 
That's what doubt is. There's such a potential energy in doubt. Because what happens? Jesus engages Thomas right where he is with his doubts. And when the penny dropped for Thomas, what does he say? Verse 28, my Lord and my God. Friends, you can read any commentary in the book of John, and they will say this is one of the most direct, profound, and bold proclamations of the deity of Jesus in all of the Gospels. So one of the greatest doubters of the faith is, in fact, one of the greatest proclaimers of the faith in history. That's the potential that there is in doubt. I love it. The Bible has such an amazingly balanced view of doubt. Because it says, yes, within the potential of seasons of doubt, there is the potential for great sin and brokenness, but there is the great potential to propel you into new levels of faith. But we don't like that. We want simple answers, right? I want some mathematical formula that I can just follow for the rest of my life, and it's all hunky-dory, but that's not what the Bible says. So often when we hit seasons of doubt or other people in our lives are in places of doubt, what do we do? We either say, this is bad. I'm a bad Christian. I shouldn't be doubting. I'm so horrible. I'm the worst ever. Or we say something like, no, I shouldn't think about this. Just switch off your brain and just believe. Or we say, well, I'm so paralyzed by my doubts. I can do nothing. This is now who I am. I'm lost. I'm broken. I'm agnostic. I'm atheist. There's nothing I can do. And the Bible says, I just reject all three of those responses. Because the Bible says, you know what? We can actually, I mean, look at what happens in this moment. Jesus says to Thomas, not, oh, what a terrible thing. You terrible disciple. How can you do this to me, Thomas? You're stabbing me in the back. How can you do, he doesn't rebuke him like that. No, he does two things. Number one, he actually pastors him. He guides him. He engages him at the very place of what? Unbelief. He says, you know what? Verse 27, don't be faithless, but believe. Because yes, doubt can take me to unbelief, but doubt can propel me into greater faith. But secondly, he does this how? By engaging him at the very place of his doubts. He doesn't sidestep those doubts. He doesn't wave his hand and do like another miracle here. He says, let me engage you at the very place that you are. If that were wrong, why would Jesus do this? Why would he not just rebuke him and leave him? No, he engages him exactly where he is. There is a balance that we need to understand. There's a tension in the Bible with regard to doubt. Yes, it can take you, if not stewarded well, to places of brokenness and sin. It can actually send you into new heights of depth and character of faith. I think doubt can actually make head knowledge in faith become life conviction. And that's amongst many things, friends, why here in this church, we can never, ever have a culture where you are not allowed or encouraged to, at the very least, to ask difficult questions. And I just ask them once, wrestle with them for days, weeks, months, years if we need to. Why? Because if we don't do that, if we do this very stupid thing where we just pretend that things are okay, friends, you know what's happening? Your faith by the day is becoming more weak, brittle, and lacking character. And what's going to happen is you are suddenly going to step onto the university campus as a high schooler that came through the church and just stuck your head in the sand and I, la, 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 I'll just believe, I won't think about this, and you will get rocked in your faith and never return. 
Something's going to happen in your life. Someone close to you for the first time ever goes through deep calamity and your faith falls apart. We need to have a balanced view on what doubt can actually do. If we go through life too busy or too uninterested to actually think about and wrestle with the issues of our life and faith, we are setting ourselves up for brokenness and failure. The first time tragedy hits your life or you meet a very smart skeptic and he rocks you in your faith. Let me give you an example. I think this is the picture that I want us to have in our minds as we think about this. How can, how can doubt actually make us strong? So I love this. Jonathan Hyde, he's got such a great example. He says that peanut allergies, you didn't expect this out of my mouth, written. in the early 1990s in the Americas, only Four out of every thousand kids under the age of eight had peanut allergies. But by the year 2000 and something, that same study and that same methodology of looking at this, they had seen that these numbers had quadrupled and more. So parents were doing what? They were panicking. They were saying, protect the children from the peanuts. Don't let them eat peanuts. Don't let them look at peanuts. Don't even say the word peanuts. They want to read the comic strip peanuts. Nothing. Like, stay away from the peanuts. Save the kids. But here's the crazy thing that happened later. They found that the reason why peanut allergies were skyrocketing amongst these kids, later they find out why. Because of the parents trying to protect, as it were, their kids from it. It was leading to greater peanut allergies amongst these kids. So in 2015, this authoritative study came out where they said they had followed 640 high-risk infants. And they said half of this group, they told the parents to follow the typical advice for these high-risk, you know, for peanut allergy kids. And that is keep it away. Stay away. This is bad. Be afraid. Run away from the peanuts. And the other half, they told the parents, give them some peanut-related product at least three times a week. So intentional exposure, and the findings were crazy. These protected kids, almost 25% of them after five years developed peanut allergies. And in the other group, virtually none of them in the next five years developed this allergy. So what is the point, friends? The point is that your immune system is not a static thing. It's a dynamic thing, and it actually needs to be challenged in order for it to become robust and strong and resilient. Your faith is exactly like that. Your faith is not a static thing. Your faith is this dynamic thing that needs to be exposed and stretched in order for it to become robust and strong and resilient. That's what we need, friends. If we're not going to do that, we are going to set up generations of people for failure because they believe that faith means you never struggle, you never doubt, you never wrestle. It's not the truth. I doubt your faith if you never doubt. And I definitely doubt the strength of your faith if you never doubt. Just this week, one of the people in our church comes to me and this person tells me with almost tears in their eyes that they, they didn't know how to speak to me because they were setting up this coffee and this long conversation and they were expecting me to be angry and disappointed. Because this person was saying over the last year, they have gone through such intense doubt about issues in the Bible and religion and ethics and uh, all of their LGBTQ friends. And there are things that she's trying to, to connect between the two. And she says, the other evening at community group, I was saying things that I don't think I believe at the moment. 
And she's almost waiting for me to like take out you know, my plucky and just like slap her over the head. And like, how can you do this to me? How can you do this to the church? You know what I said? I understand exactly where you are. Because that's me. That's me often. It will be me again. And you know what? Here is a hand of friendship and pastoring. Let's wrestle together. That is the kind of church that we want to be. Friends, deep faith, unshakable faith is not about perfection. It's about progress. There's no such thing as perfection. On the other side of every season, whether a weekend, a month, a year, or a decade of genuine doubt on some issue, on the other side of that doubt, there is the potential for a faith that's even more robust and strong and resilient. I love What Austin Fisher in his book on doubt, Faith in the Shadows, he says, people don't abandon faith because they have doubts. People abandon faith because they think they're not allowed to have doubts. What happens in the church? People abandon faith because intentionally or unintentionally, they have been forced into an impossible and unbiblical and binary choice. You can have Jesus or you can have doubts, but you can't have both. That is not biblical Christianity. That's the reality. Everyone is struck by it. But there is such positive potential and energy in it. So what's the reason for that? Why does this happen to us? I want to say we all have had this. You've had it many times and it will happen again where you say, man, my faith is emphatic. It's alive. It's powerful. I'm living just in wide-eyed wonder, and I walk around with tears, and I just worship in my office. I'm on cloud nine. There's this joy-filled simplicity in my faith. Jesus is audible almost in his voice. He is unflinching in his trust and commitment to me. And then life happens. Maybe you experience just a sudden loss someone genuinely close to you, friend, parent, child, and your broken heart, it cries out, why, Jesus? Why, God? And after months, you experience silence. You used to love the Bible, and then you read something, or you came upon something, and now, everywhere you read in the Bible, it just offends and confuses and angers and frustrates you. So you just put it down. Maybe you were hurt by the church, someone like me, a leader. Maybe someone in the church, closer than a brother, just stabbed you in the back. Maybe the moral character of the church was not at all what you thought it should be. Maybe some famous atheist, you heard this person unhelpfully saying, you have to choose between science and faith. He's saying, but I want to believe this, but now I'm not sure how these two things are reconciled with one another. Perhaps you just grew disillusioned because after years of praying for a certain issue, You just felt God was saying nothing. Or maybe, here's the scariest one of all, scarier than the devil from last week. It's when the dreariness of life just chokes out the passion of your faith. You used to have this potent faith, and now that has just been basically supplanted by conference calls and diapers and exams and mowing the lawn and Instagram notifications and office drama and sitting in the traffic, and suddenly my faith feels irrelevant. Friends, there are so many things that can rock us in our faith. Suddenly I'm confronted with evil and suffering. 
Suddenly, I encounter another worldview and culture, and I never thought about the bigness of the world. Suddenly, some very smart skeptic gives me an argument against my beliefs that I never considered, and I'm rocked to the core. Just the other day, friends of ours, two weeks ago, armed robbery at their office. Guys walk, and the one guy has an AK-47, and he places it right up against one of the children in that space, rocked to the core. Just the other day, a young person comes and speaks to me and says, listen, my issues, and I see ethical things in the Bible that just doesn't square out with the generation that I live in. Just in this week, speaking to one of our partners, who says that their spouse was so passionate about Jesus that they actually shared their testimony in front of everyone at their wedding spoke about how God had guided them to marry this person, and today they are a committed atheist. And the journey started with hypocrisy in the church. Leaders are saying one thing and doing another. And the issue with all these things and many more, I don't know your life, is we always knew these things. None of this stuff is new information, but suddenly something happens in your life really close to your ribs, and suddenly it's emotionally right in your face. You can't ignore it anymore. You can't look away. Now it's there. And guys, I've had that often. You can ask my wife. I've gone through seasons. There was one December holiday. We're driving and close to the beach, and she asked me, listen, are you still there? Are you still a Christian? And I'm like, just give me a month. I need to wrestle through some things. So I get that. But you know what happens? People will then often say, guys, the answer is so simple. It's faith. Just have faith. Your, your dad died. This thing happened. The Bible, conf- it's just faith. And in fact, I've had with good hearts, I'm being, I'm being a bit facetious here, but it's with a good heart. People will quote to me Hebrews 11 verse 1. It's the magic formula to solve all the issues of life. Let's read it together. It's so powerful, so clear. Hebrews 11 1. Now, faith, is the reality of what is hoped for, it's the proof of what is not seen. What does this verse say? <laughs> so often people roll it out as like, bam, faith. I'm like, yes, I don't know. This is just vague enough to be interpreted in any way. And this is why, principle of reading the Bible, never read a verse, friends. Never read a verse, read a chapter, read a book, read it in the scriptures, scope, and narrative. Because what this verse is unpacked into in the rest of the chapter is story after story after story of people who were filled with doubt and brokenness and sin and disobedience. And in those moments filled with uncertainty, this is the key word, they trusted God enough to act and obey even when filled with doubt. The opposite of faith is not doubt. No, trust in Jesus. And even when filled with uncertainty, I will take the step because I trust you. Faith is not the absence of doubt, friends. It's the willingness to trust God and obey Him even when I'm filled with uncertainty. We've said it so often, you can trust the heart of God in your life, even when you cannot fully trace the hand of God in your life. 
There are so many ways that we end up in this place, but it does not have to be the end. So what do we do? Because this is the crucial thing. Third point. What's our reaction to it? If we want to be a church who faithfully and maturely walks through seasons of doubt, potentially finding even more potent and powerful faith on the other hand, how are we going to do that? And I want to say, friends, you need to become a student of your faith. One of the worst things in our current culture of Christianity is we are weak in our understanding and our expression and experience of our faith. And I'm saying that to myself. We need to become students of our faith. So there are books and people and seminars and things. People for the last 2,000 years have deeply thought and wrestled with the issues of our faith. Don't let yourself be found without those things. So there are so many things we could say, but just three quick things that I want to leave with you today. How do we react in these seasons when I'm in a week, a month, a year? I don't know when it was the last time that I'm in the thick of a season of doubt. My life has been toppled. What do I do? The first thing is this. In a season of doubt... Seize the moment to truly grow and deepen your faith. This is your moment, as disorienting as it is. Friends, do you know that your muscles weaken when you don't use them? Studies have been done on astronauts. Even just five or 11 days in outer space, they come back. Some of them have lost 20% of their muscle mass and bone density. If you are not challenged, you weaken. We need to be a church who says in a safe way, the two things that can happen is I'm never challenged any weight in my faith and I get to university, I get to divorce, I get to cancer and a a big weight just crushes me. Or I just never exercise. And I'm just like, just going through, hoping that there will be no weights. Friends, that's not real life. I need to have controlled and reasonable and seasoned moments of really wrestling with life, wrestling with faith, wrestling with theology, wrestling with the trueness of my faith, not there up in the clouds, but in the real world. You need to strengthen and say, in this moment, this doubt, this issue that I'm facing, this is my moment to grow my faith, not to let go of it. I love Dominic Don in his book on faith, when faith fails, finding God In the shadows of doubt, he says, your doubts are not the sign of spiritual collapse, but of a faith that is screaming out for substance and truth. God, I want a faith that is powerful, true, and strong. Take me not around this issue. Take me straight into it. Doubts can be a doorway, friends, to intimacy with God. But I want to caution us just with one thought on this. It's really helped me over the years especially if you're wired in certain ways temperamentally and your, your personality is of a certain sort. John Lennox, he is a, he's the Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Oxford. He also has a second PhD, one of those guys from Oxford in philosophy. Like, how? But this man, he speaks five languages. He's not an uneducated and silly man. But he's a man of deep Christian faith. As a mathematician, he speaks eloquently about his faith over the last 87 years of his life. But he says this, and I think this is so crucial, when you are genuinely wrestling like we often do with issues that don't have bow tie answers. He says, friends, it's only in my field of mathematics where you get the idea of proof. Nowhere else do you get this thing called proof. It's only in my field of mathematics. In the rest of life, we work with evidences. He says, think about this. Like 2% of life can be built on proof, irrefutable proof. 
everything else, all the beautiful parts of life, love and the law and arts and beauty and relationships and religion and ethics and philosophy, you can't have proof you work with what is the evidence pointing me to. What's the evidence for and what's the evidence against? Friends, I'm asking you today, prove to me that the couple that have been married for 50 years love each other. Prove it to me. Prove to me that a poem is beautiful. Prove to me that rape is evil. Prove to me that you are not a butterfly dreaming about being a person in church this morning. Prove it to me. You cannot do it. Most of life is not built on proof. God, I need proof or nothing. That's not Christianity. Christianity says, come and be captivated by the evidence for the man called Jesus. Let his life, death, and resurrection unlock the Christian faith for you. Don't start with all the difficult stuff. And when the difficult stuff is there, let's look at it, let's argue, let's read, let's wrestle, but come back to the fact that it's built on this one thing. The historical case for Jesus is one of the most compelling things you can ever look into and wrestle with. And he says, this is Christianity. It's Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. You do the homework. You look at the evidences and live your life accordingly. Friends, in seasons of doubt, Look holistically at your life, please. Look holistically at your life. Matthew 22 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We make a massive mistake when we say, I cannot be a Christian now. I've let go of my faith because it's intellectual. It might start there, but that's not ever the full picture. You say, no, Joe, I went to university. I read those skeptical books, and then I became an atheist. Yes, that's true. But you also met that one very intelligent friend who laughed at your beliefs and you felt so insecure. You also started sleeping with your boyfriend as you were taking up this culture of hookup in Pretoria. And all those things rolled into one. You suddenly woke up one day and everything was redefined. Yes, there is always a core issue. My father died. There's no explanation to that. I've read this in the Bible and it absolutely bugs me. I don't understand how God can do this if he's even there. He's silent and he's hidden All those things are true, but there's always more to the story. So don't look at your life as an, I'm just going to study the issue and the rest will just have to wait. I'm just going to wrestle with this issue of death in my family. The rest I have to wait. You have to live holistically. So be wise, friends. You can't just say, I'm just going to study. No, you need to pray and sing and study and speak and serve and wait and cry. You are a person. You're not a brain on a stick. Christianity is not one or the other. It's all these things. So in those seasons, you have to be wise. Ask yourself questions as you're wrestling through that issue. Like, okay, but who am I hanging out with? Is it only one kind of person or is there balance in the people that are tugging at my life? It makes a difference. Ask yourself questions like, have I unwisely just dipped into all the arguments on one side of an issue or am I actually being challenged on both? Makes a difference. Have you abandoned just passionate worship of Jesus during that season? It makes a difference. Are you pressing into community or are you pressing out of it? It makes a difference. You are not a brain on a stick. You're a human being. Tackle these issues holistically. And then last thing. In seasons of doubt, please remember that Christianity is found on the strength of of Christ, not the strength of your faith. It's found on the strength of Christ, not the strength of your faith in Christ.
Friends, can I take you to probably my favorite scripture in the Bible? 1 Corinthians 15. This is powerful. Paul the apostle, follower of Jesus, hater of the church, becoming a planter of the church. And he says this, if Christ has not been raised, if this Jesus thing is not what he said it is, then our proclamation is in vain. And then so is your faith. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are in your sin still. Verse 19, if we have put our hope in Christ and if he's not raised, we should be pitied more than anyone. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He says, friends, this is not a conversation primarily about creationism or science. This is not an issue of evil and suffering. This is not an issue of history or this or that. There is one linchpin for Christianity and everything rests upon that is Jesus who he said he is. And if that is the truth, everything else comes from it. I'm not saying these other issues aren't important. Of course they are. But Paul says, not young earth or old earth or evolution or... No, he says, Jesus resurrected. That's the issue. Not Auschwitz and evil and war in Russia and God, why the kids and why this... He says, if Jesus is raised, those things will find their place. That's what it's built on. That's why I love it. We often sing that song, Cornerstone, but it actually comes from an old hymn called Solid Rock where it says, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. I don't rest in my ability to know it. I don't rest in my faculties to figure out life. I rest in the unchanging grace of a man and you're wondering, but how will I know that he won't abandon me, that he won't turn his face from me? Because there was a moment on the cross when Jesus took upon himself sin, Satan, death, brokenness, rebellion, the filth, the hurt, the guilt. He took all of that. And the Father turned his face away from him so that he would never turn his face away from those who have their faith in Jesus. I rest in his unchanging grace. Friends, Jesus, John 1 says, he's full of grace and truth. So I get it. Some people thought, Thomas, this guy is abrasive. He's opinionated. He's overly skeptical. And I'm like, but that's me. Maybe that's you. Maybe today you say, I'm not skeptical, but I'm a hard drinker and I've lost my way. Maybe you say, I'm just so bored with religion at the moment. Maybe say, at the moment, I cannot move past the fact that this person in my life just disappeared. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus comes to find you exactly where you are. He's full of grace and truth. He finds you where you are in grace, but he loves you too much to leave you there in truth. Have you been found by this man? I rest in his unchanging grace. Let's pray. Lord, it's incredible to know that you know us inside and out without any expression or anything that we need to verbalize. God, you are here in the midst of whatever it is we're doubting in at the moment. And I want to pray for each person that is standing here, and I include myself in that, that's, that's just got areas of doubt and areas that we're trying to wrestle through this morning. 
And we ask you, Holy Spirit, would you just come and minister to us in the midst of that space? I wonder if you're standing here and you're one of those people that have said, yes, I've got this area of doubt. Can you just envision in your mind's eye that the Lord or Jesus or the Holy Spirit is just stepping into that space now with you? That you're not alone. God is not on the outside, but He's in that space, sitting with you, ministering to you. God is not shocked by your doubt. God is not scared of it. God is holding you in this season. So Lord, we just want to pray for more and more of your presence and your peace as we navigate this season. We want to pray for the wisdom to know when it's your voice, when it's our own voice, when it's the enemy's voice. And I want to pray for each and every person standing here, God, that their ears will be opened, that their eyes will be opened to the truth, and that you will silence the lies of the enemy. We just pray, Holy Spirit, over each person, just more of you. More of you, Holy Spirit, come. More of you. We want to pray, God, that where it's past hurt and places we need healing, would you come and minister that healing to our spirits this morning? Where it's something we need to put down, God. Maybe it is just that thing of, you know what, the reason I doubt is because there's just this aspect that I'm just not handing over or not dealing with. If it's that, God, I, I pray that you give us the courage and the strength to put it down today. Help us to put it down. And again, if, if that's you and you know there's something you need to put down, just physically, just act in some way. Imagine that there's this boulder that you just need to put down on the ground. And today, as we end our time of prayer, that you're going to walk away from it. And that the Spirit will walk with you, that God walks with you away from that. But I want to pray that, that today, as we, as we just say amen, as we end this time of prayer, that when you go back to your seat, that you know in your heart of hearts, you're not going back to that seat alone. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit walks with you. This community walks with you. And this doesn't need to be the end of the conversation. This doesn't need to be the end of the time of ministry. But then every single person in this space wants to walk that road with you. So we thank you, Father. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you come into those deep places, that you come into our places of brokenness and fear and doubt and uncertainty. And I pray that you minister your peace, your steadiness, your joy, that where our doubt or our uncertainty has stolen our joy from us, that you will restore joy.
we declare that you are faithful and you are good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen, friends.